You're listening to Dedication Point, a speaker series and podcast produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. For those of you who are tuning into Dedication Point for the first time, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of our episodes from the first season of the show. A few years back, we produced an oral history series focused on the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, and archives 20 of those interviews in our first season of the Dedication Point podcast. Our second season of the series will be focused on current issues and topics relevant to the Snake River Canyon region, as well as Birds of Prey. This is the first of six episodes that we'll release as a part of this second season of Dedication Point. In today's episode, you'll hear from a panel of raptor biologists who are involved in the current effort to survey the Snake River Canyon's prairie falcon population. As you'll hear in the discussion, the Snake River Canyon is a very special place for prairie falcons, and the full canyon survey that's currently underway is part of a monumental effort to assess the size and health of this population. We'll start with introductions from each of our panelists. Hi, I'm Karen Steenhoff. I'm a retired research wildlife biologist. I came to Idaho in 1977 to study prairie falcons in the birds of prey area. And I did so through working with both in BLM, NBS, and USGS over the years, uh, looking specifically at um, their reproduction, their food habits, and their long range movements. And I also studied other raptors during that time period, but prairie falcons um, have always been one of the key species. Well, I'm Mike Cokert. I'm a, an emeritus scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. And I've been working in what is now the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area for the last pretty much 50 years and been working on a myriad of different species over the time. My name is Todd Katzner. I'm a research wildlife biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, I have studied birds of prey now for, uh, for by my, well, by some standards, a very short period of time, but for about 30 years. And uh, I really walk in the, in the footsteps of greatness because I, I, I work at the same place where Mike and Karen used to work, and they really set a standard that uh, is very high and, and uh, makes me want to do projects like we're going to be talking about today in the best possible way. Hi, I'm Steve Alsup. I'm a research associate for Boise State University. I work at the Raptor Research Center there. Uh, I'm also on the board of directors for the Birds of Prey NCA partnership. Uh, I first came to Idaho and 2003 to survey for prairie falcons and Mike and Karen uh, were my supervisors and that's that's how I got roped into this um, this whole project. Yeah, so I'm Joe Weldon. I am the biologist uh, for the Morgan Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. Um, my role on the prairie falcon um, research project is to provide some logistical help um, in the field. So working with Steve to coordinate um, where to keep the vehicles and help uh, get the crew out to the field, um, 
help store the boat that they're using at our facilities at the BLM office. And then um, also involved with acquiring the funding and putting together the, the grant, the assistance agreement with Boise State um, and the guard funds that we were able to leverage, um, some, doing some admin work in the background. My name is Jim Beltoff. I'm a professor at Boise State University. Uh, and for the past four years, I've been the interim director of the Raptor Research Center at, at Boise State. I've been conducting research on birds of prey in the birds of prey area for about 28 years, although most of my own research is focused on owls out there in the birds of prey area. I dabble with a few other um, species of raptor as well. I collaborate with essentially everybody on this call, the agencies, the, the scientists, and so forth, and I look forward to discussing the project today. I'm Kevin Warner. I'm a biologist with the Idaho Army National Guard, and I first came to uh, Southwest Idaho for graduate school at BSU, and I've been studying birds here um, ever since, uh, about 25 years. Um, with the National Guard, I'm in charge of studying all wildlife and all plants. Uh, but I do have a focus uh, with, with the birds of prey here. Fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for providing those introductions. Um, first, I'd like to dive just a little bit into the history of the, the creation and the designation of uh, this NCA. Um, and I want to talk about how prairie falcon research is intertwined with that history. I'm relying on you, Mike and Karen. You know, for people who have never heard of this particular NCA, aren't familiar with the unique prairie falcon research and how, it's, how it affected the designation, how, you know, where would you start? I guess I will. Okay. Um, one of the first jobs that I had... That's Mike Coker, Emeritus Scientist with USGS. When I first started working for the, uh, in the what is now the NCA... Actually, I was the first biologist that was hired at that time by the Bureau of Land Management. So my first job was to assess the raptor po uh, resource or the raptor populations in the area and to look at their spatial needs. And one of the things that we found early in the game was that we had an extremely unique population of prairie falcons. And that translated to an estimate that there was a that the 81 mile stretch of the Snake River Canyon forming what is now the NCA contained about 5% of the total world's population of prairie falcons, which was incredible. So that really made the area really unique in terms of not only having a, an impressive array of raptors, but also that it had a significant population of prairie falcons. And so, quite frankly, in my opinion, the NCA was established for pretty much as a result of the unique resource and the prairie falcon contributed almost entirely to that. Over the years, we have been focusing on reproduction, the spatial requirements, and the habitat requirements of, of the prairie falcons. So one of the th first things that we did was we, we, were looking, we, we were charged with how big of an area 
would be needed to maintain this population. And that was another big surprise that we had. Not only did we have a, you know, a significant population of prairie falcons, we found that their spatial needs was incredibly large. You know, it was huge. They used extremely large ranges. So I don't know, Karen, what else do you have to add? Um, well, we started doing surveys. Well, you started doing surveys in 1973, but we figured that the first full canyon survey was um, in 1976. That was the first year we really felt we got a complete survey of prairie falcons in the canyon. And we did that for the next two years. And then there was a gap. Um, and then we resumed full canyon surveys when the Idaho National Guard uh, funded uh, a, some a multidisciplinary research. So from 1990 to 1994, we had full canyon surveys again. Um, 94, we saw a drop in the number of pairs nesting in the canyon. Um, and then we did a limited survey in 1997 of just some selected areas. And we, we also were concerned then because the numbers were not what they were in the 70s and early 90s. So it, until the, then we, we got some funding when the BLM's um, resource management plan for the Birds of Prey area was being developed. And we did another full canyon survey in 2002 and found that the numbers were higher than they had ever been. Um, and we did a, a random sample of the canyon in 2003 and found that numbers appeared to be good. But then there was a 16 year hiatus in sampling. And um, we, we've, been, we've been hoping to have uh, more sampling for a long time. And then finally in 2019, it, it, it came available and um, I'll let others talk about that. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, thanks to, to both, to both of you, Mike and Karen for um, providing that overview of the history. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, this is one uh, aspect of this particular national conservation area that makes it really unique is that the, the, the boundary was determined in large part by the habitat requirements of the Prairie Falcon. Um, and the legislation creating this national conserva conservation area has written into um, the designation the, uh, the, the obligation of management agencies to, to manage the area for the protection of birds of prey, um, with prairie falcons being of high concern for the reasons that Mike and Karen just um, outlined. So the 16 year gap in research that you mentioned, Karen, um, was significant, right? And I know that there were a lot of people during, like throughout that period of time when there had been this large gap where the population hadn't been surveyed that, that were concerned about what was going on with the prairie falcon, this unique population of prairie falcons. Um, what was going on during that 16 year gap and some of the efforts to try to, you know, pull together the funding and the resources to allow those surveys to continue? Yeah, so I started, you know, working in the NCA um, around the year 2015. That's Joe Weldon, biologist with the Bureau of Land Management. And at that time, you know, there wasn't any prey falcon monitoring being conducted. 
the last surveys were conducted in 2003. Um, I kind of jumped in with Mike Coker working on the Golden Eagle work that was going on at the time. Um, and working with, you know, Mike Coker and Boise State University, Julie Heeslab on the Golden Eagle work. I started working with other biologists, um, including Karen. So I think it was in 2017 and in preparation for the Raptor Research Foundation meeting, um, Karen, Mike and I put together a presentation, mostly Karen and Mike, um, to talk about, you know, prairie falcon monitoring in the NCA and I guess like future direction I was working on an internal um, proposal to try and acquire some BLM funding to do, um, you know, a subset survey of full, or a full canyon survey of the Prairie Falcon monitoring study. I wasn't successful in acquiring that funding, but I think that presentation and then working with sort of the local NCA, you know, Raptor science team, whatever we want to call it, the community, the guard approached us and said, you know, we have some end of year funding and they, you know, kind of asked, what, what should we do with this? And I think I approached Todd Katz there in, in, in company and said, yeah, we, we should probably look at doing a Prairie Falcon survey with that funding. And that was the catalyst to getting those first surveys done in 2019. Um, and then since then, you know, another subsequent survey was conducted. And then the funding that I had requested in 2019 finally came to fruition last year um, and we had some partial funding about $113,000 to work with the guard and leverage some of their funding, you know, the other like $247,000, I believe, approximately to do the entire full Canyon survey. So yeah, one third of the full Canyon survey budget is provided by the BLM and the other two thirds is provided by the Army National Guard. I was hired here about six years ago. That's Todd Katzner, research wildlife biologist with USGS. I, I moved to Boise in West Virginia, and I don't think this happened during the interview process, but I'd probably been in my chair for all of 20 seconds when Mike probably stuck his head in and said, Todd, we got to get out there and survey the prairie falcons again. And, uh, and, and that became, um, and I mean, and, and event, you know, uh, Karen also would have repeated that or at least conveyed the same sentiment. And um, I think that it was, uh, it was obvious to me that they were right, for starters, uh, but also that this is, you know, we've got this remarkable data set uh, going back potentially into the, you know, to some degree into the 70s. And, uh, and the opportunity, and we just don't have that many opportunities in science or resource management to revisit surveys like this and to redo things like this. And so the opportunity was, was really unique. And I, I think early on, at least since I've been here, and you know, I am sort of a short timer here, but um, I, know that, I know that I've talked to Kevin about it for a number of years and, and also I think to, to Jim, um, and this this was a priority, and I think it actually um, it speaks. It, you know, a lot of the funding for this has come from the from the National Guard, who also funded some of the original work years ago. And and uh, I I think it might be really good if Kevin talked about the Guard perspective on it. I think that might give a lot of of context for what's being done now. 
Yeah, Kevin, uh, feel free to jump in. Uh, I mean, and and anything you have to say about you know your perspective uh, working for the guard and the guard's role in all this. Yeah, so I came to uh, I guess I came to the guard about twelve years ago, and in that time uh, I was in Boise before that doing bird work also, but. Um, there were several NCA symposiums that I've attended and, and this, this uh, exactly what Todd said, this kept coming up that we need to revisit these and really, um, you know, prairie falcons and raptors in general in the canyon, in the Snake River Canyon always came up as being, we need to redo this, we need to redo this. Um, so I think I'd been kind of filing that away and then in 2019, um, is when we were able to, you know, some funding became available. And this was one of those almost, you might call it a shovel ready project because uh, Mike and Karen had already read, they, they had lined out everything, right? Like they knew that we could subsample uh, some of the, the, the territories. Um, and, and so there was kind of like a full Canyon survey option. And then there was like a, a, a smaller option and our funding matched that smaller option. And the guard is always looking to partner with other agencies. And, um, and this just, just fit in perfectly. Um, and that's, that's at least my role in it is I saw that opportunity that we could, that we could help out here. Excellent. And I mean, you know, Kevin, just for folks who might sort of learn about, you know, uh, this, this collaborative effort between the, the National Guard and, and Boise State and USGS and, you know, their involvement in this, this research project on prairie falcons, you know, a lot of people would, I think, be surprised to learn that the National Guard is involved in a research project like this, a biological research project. Like, maybe you can just talk about, like, like you know, what it is, like, what's unique about this specific National Guard site and why it, it made why it makes so much sense to partner with all these different agencies on this research. Well, yeah, it's kind of a, it goes back a long time. I think to the fifties that the, the guard has been training out here in some way and maybe before that, but um, we're the only military base that is entirely in a national conservation area. Um, and it was, the training was there before that. And then it was established as a conservation area later. And, um, the only way we train out there is we need to maintain our compatibility with the habitat and the birds of prey. Um, now that's what we have to do. Uh, but fast forward to at least my time here, this has been a major focus of the commanding um, general of the National Guard and of the military division. So. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I heard him say, um, and I'm just going to I'm going to kind of like read his quote because I think it's so great. So he said, we train to protect our nation's interests and the preservation of our environment is and should be one of the most important national interests. And then he went on to say, we don't take care of the environment in order to train. Uh, we train to preserve the environment. So this is a commanding general, um, Garshak, who is who is now in charge out here. And so you know, it comes from the very top. And it, so it makes it really easy for me to do my job and to work with these, these partners. Um, yes, we need to maintain the habitat and the birds to, to train out there under uh, a public law, uh, but also our commanding general is saying, hey, everybody from the top down, this is a priority. This is a national interest that we are training to protect. 
Jim, I may, uh, I wonder if we can jump to you and maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, Boise State's uh, in, involvement in, in, in this project and uh, what sort of role you're playing. Yeah, so, so Boise State's role, we have a, a Raptor Research Center at Boise State University as well as a, a Raptor Biology graduate program. So we have a major focus in science related to birds of prey and raptors and the birds of prey area is right in our backyard here at Boise State. Um, so we partnered with Division of the Military, USGS and other entities to help um, kind of plan and conduct these surveys. So, so all of the people that carried out the surveys were employees of Boise State University and our Raptor Research Center. My role is to provide high-level administrative oversight over, over aspects of the project in consultation with, with the scientists and so forth. And, and I'm a raptor biologist, so, so I have some background in, in the science as well. Um, we hired our, our project manager, Steve Alsip, and he has coordinated closely with Karen and Mike, as well as Todd and Kevin um, and Joe at the BLM in terms of carrying out the day-to-day -day activities, supervising our field crews, collecting the data, analyzing the data. And then ultimately the entire team is gonna analyze those data to find out if there have been any significant trends in the prairie falcon numbers, whether there are any changes that would represent a major conservation concern or anything like that. Clearly what we know is that in the, the 20 years or so since a lot of the early survey work was done, there's a lot of changes to the birds of prey area. There, there are a lot more human impacts on the birds of prey area just because of the population growths, both kind of north of the river to some extent and south of the river to, to a smaller extent. But certainly in the Boise area, there, there's a lot more people. There's people are having access to regions of the birds of prey area where they may not have had similar access in the past. And so a lot of things have changed in, in the time period from when the early surveys were done to the time period that we're now carrying them out. Another major concern is possible climate change considerations, both on the environment and on the birds themselves specifically. And so these longer term data are going to allow us to piece together some of those changes, provide information to the the agencies that manage the area, both in terms of the BLM, in terms of the division of the military, and so forth so that they can make any changes that are necessary out, out there. So that's the role that Boise State plays. So the funding comes to Boise State University, but we work really closely with our partners in USGS, um, at BLM, and then Idaho Division of the Military to, to pull off different aspects of the project. So yeah, I didn't want to interrupt Jim, but I wanted to add and to what he said and what, um, what I was saying about yeah, during we were surprised in 2002 that the numbers were as high as they were because prairie falcons feed primarily on ground squirrels, Paiute ground squirrels in the NCA. And many studies show that their populations are most stable in sagebrush, stands of shrubs. And we've had extensive shrub loss in the birds of prairie area, mainly before 2000 but also afterwards. So we were surprised at that finding. And then we were surprised at the early findings of these new studies because 
I'll let Steve talk about them, but there's still a lot we don't know about prairie falcons and how they are able to find and capture ground squirrels um, in various habitats. One thing I'd like to add is that over the years we found that the prairie falcon is pretty much of a ground squirrel specialist. And we did an assessment of the effects of changing prey resources on three different raptor species. And we found that with the prairie falcon, the Paiute ground squirrel was the main prey. And there was no really, there wasn't any real secondary prey. No other prey species comprised more than 5% of the prairie's diet. So what this means, if the squirrels go, prairies go. So it's, it's, it's really a unique situation. And uh, I, I think that it, the efforts by like the National Guard to maintain that shrub habitat, to keep the squirrels going is really uh, impressive. Um, yeah, uh, really quick. So the guards, uh, probably 30 years, people before me in my position have been working really hard to not only protect habitat, um, adjusting moving types of military training that would help the birds of prey, um, but also we've been studying ground squirrels. And when we have a team here that's been looking at ground squirrels for years, so we're really looking at, at studying their prey. So the, the guard doesn't train in the canyon. Um, the, the guard trains, I guess, I think Mike, I've heard him say this many times, like in, in the kitchen for the, the birds of prey and the raptors in the canyon. And, and so, um, you know, that's kind of where we come in and redoing these surveys really will help tell us how good of a job we're doing um, by how good the birds are doing down there in the canyon, because this is where they feed, where the military training occurs. So we're really excited to see these results, to see if our uh, habitat protection and enhancement efforts uh, that we've been uh, hitting pretty hard, if those are uh, showing results for those birds in the canyon. Excellent. Yeah. And I mean, that, uh, that, that background is really important. So, so thanks to both of you, Mike and Karen, for, for bringing that up, right? I mean, that is one of the core concerns um, and, and one of the primary reasons why it's important to, to do this survey work um, is that there have been these really um, these really large scale landscape changes uh, within the NCA. Um, and it, it is, there are still a lot of unknowns uh, about the effects that that has on uh, raptor abundance and prairie falcon abundance. Um, before we dive a little bit more into sort of like uh, a preliminary results and, and, and what the past few years of surveys have shown us, um, I'd like to um, talk a little bit about just what the field work entails um, and, and you know, what this sort of work looks like on the ground. Um, I'm, I'm going to go to you, Steve, uh, first, but um, I mean, anyone else feel free to, to interject because I know everybody has spent a lot of time out in the NCA. Yeah, I can kind of get us started and, and people can jump in and tell me when I said something wrong for sure. Um, but sort of the one of the main approaches is it's a large study area. Like Mike said, it's 81 miles of, of canyon. Uh, and so it's a and there's side channels and side draws and, and things like that that make it complicated as well. So um, the approach that we've taken in the last couple of years has, has been really similar to what Mike and Karen uh, have set up in the past. And, and I think one of the reasons that I that I fit in well with this project is I was 
lucky enough to be on the 2003 crew during the first subsample. Uh, I was a super green early career biologist at that point, but um, that gave me some sort of a, a base of understanding of how this would, would happen again. Um, and so it was really nice to have a protocol to lean on, but uh, some broad strokes, we, we basically subdivide the canyon into five kilometer and 10 kilometer units just to make it a little bit easier to digest. Um, we further subdivide those five kilometer units into what we call one kilometer segments. Um, and so we have 262 one kilometer segments of canyon wall to survey. And, and we do that during two different periods, uh, early, early season survey um, that coordinates with nest initiation and courtship uh, and early incubation. Uh, and then we take a break for a, for a few weeks and we look at, we do a second round of surveys um, in those one kilometer segments that coordinates with um, the time of year that nestlings are getting larger and they're very vocal while they're begging for food and they're, they're exercising their wings and, and they become uh, really easy to detect. So we do one sort of um, research goal is to, to assess the number of pairs of birds in the canyon. Um, so th those surveys do that for us. So we, we say how many pairs are in this one kilometer segment and then we do that 262 times. Um, and then the other thing we wanna know is, is of those nesting birds or of those birds that are holding down a territory, how successful they are they at getting young out of the nest? So um, there's two ways to do that. Productivity is, is how many young fledged from the nest. So one, two, three, four, five, or zero, sometimes six. Um, and another way to do that is just nesting success. So did any young get out of the nest or not? And nesting success is a little easier to get a hold of for these cavity nesting birds that like to hide away in little nooks and crannies uh, in, in the canyon. And so we've been looking at success uh, at 50 randomly selected territories throughout the study area. So the one kilometer segment surveys give us density or occupancy, and then the picking 50 nests to um, subsample for success gives us an idea of overall um, reproductive performance. Awesome. I, I, I mean, I, I do kind of want to touch on, I mean, Mike, you mentioned early on, you gave us some context for um, the unusually high density of prairie falcons that nest in, in these areas. But like, I, I, I guess I, I, I'm curious to hear about like what that feels like when you're there, when you're in the field and there's all these prairie falcons flying around. I mean, especially for, you know, uh, folks like, yourselves who are raptor biologists and, and like have, you know, an understanding of like how unusual it is to see so many prairie falcons packed into such a tight area, you know, like, what, like what's that like? And, 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 and also Steve, I'm curious about like sort of just the terrain and the landscape and like, like, is it difficult to get to some of these sites? It is uh, difficult to reach some of these areas. Um, some areas have nice gravel road access. Um, there's two, hydro dams in the in the study area. So there's nice roads to get to and from some of these areas and some are uh, extremely remote and difficult to get to. So we survey by truck. Uh, we also survey by boat. Uh, and we also reach some areas by ATV or UTV or, or you know something a little more maneuverable than a full-size truck. Uh, and so that makes scheduling extremely difficult. Uh, we have a 10 person crew this year. So we need to get 10 people out into the field and try to attack these one kilometer segments in some sort of um, clear and concise way. So 
one of the issues that I think about when I'm, when I'm scheduling someone is if they're going to look at three kilometers of Canyon during the day, is it easier for them to be at the base of the Canyon at the river looking up? Is it easier for them to be at the rim of the Canyon looking down? Uh, is it easier for them to be on the opposite side of the river looking across? Uh, and so if I want to send someone to cover say five or six kilometers of, of Canyon, some of that is better done from the top looking down, some from across the river looking across, um, some from below the nest cliff looking up. And so um, it's really difficult to say, all right, two people in a truck, you go do these six kilometers when one person needs to be on the south side of the river and one person needs to be on the north side of the river. One person needs to be at the base of the canyon wall and one person needs to be on the rim. Um, so while it, it makes sense, like, all right, you've got 10 people, they can all do three kilometers in a day. So just assign 30 continuous kilometers and tell them to go get it. Um, it doesn't work that well because people need to be in different places, even within a very small area of the canyon. So um, you can imagine um, any of the folks out there that have had a chance to see the National Conservation Area know what it looks like, but sometimes 300, 400 foot, you know, nest cliffs, um, sometimes broken crumbly canyon, sometimes super easy access. Sometimes it takes us two and a half hours to get to where we want to start surveying for the day. So uh, it's a lot of logistics and getting everything covered. We basically have one month to cover 262 kilometers uh, and then we take a little break and then we do it again at the end of the season. So um, a lot of this area, since we're doing a full Canyon survey uh, for the first time since 2002, I wasn't on the 2002 crew. So I haven't been to some of these places at all. Um, some of these places I haven't been to since 2003. Um, some of them I'm lucky to lucky enough to have been to in the last two years. And I can tell people exactly where to go and stand to look at territory X, Y, or Z. Some of it, I tell people, um, here's what I think you should do. Here's the keys to your truck. Tell me how it went at the end of the day. Um, so a lot of logistics and getting, getting the area covered. And I, I'm curious, you know, Mike and Karen, you know, since, since the two of you have, uh, you know, a, this experience from the past of doing these full Canyon surveys, like have the two of you been, been, been helping Steve kind of just figure out some of the logistics of like, like how it's even possible to, to, you know, do this, uh, you know, logistically difficult, really large survey effort. In terms of the astronomical challenge, you know, logistical challenge to get 10 people in the field and, and to get everything done in, a, in that short amount of time. So, yeah, uh, but, you know, Steve has, uh, it was really good in, in the fact that he had prior experience, but I was going to, going, you know, I'm probably getting off topic a little bit, but you asked what it was like to be down there and, and working that area. Um, I don't know if I be, should be calling this, but there's a stretch in the canyon that was actually named by the first person to do prairie falcon work in a Snake River, and that was Andy Ogden, who did it for his master's work. And he went down to that stretch below Swan Falls Dam and I was actually, you know, uh, spending time with him uh, during that period because I was doing my graduate work on the Golden Eagles in the canyon. And he came back just holding his head and he called that stretch the hell hole because these, there were so many prairie falcons. It was like Christopher Robin trying to count all the bees in a hive. He was just going nuts trying to figure out what was going on down there. So 
that's sharing a little bit of the feeling of what it's like to be working in the field. But another point I wanted to put in, about what makes these birds so unique is that we were talking about, you know, ex the, the extremely large ranges. These birds will travel up to 30 miles or, or excuse me, up to 30 kilometers or about what, what is that? About 25 miles to go forage and bring back, uh, you know, ground squirrels. And they can do that up to about six times a day. They're just incredible, incredible predators. It's just fantastic to watch them and to, to just experience them. And there's been times, I don't know of any other place on this earth where a person could lift up their binoculars and see two prairie falcon scrapes with young and be in the field of view of your binoculars and only be across the canyon. That, that happened to me once and it was, it's just unbelievable what you see out there. Yeah, for the, the last two years uh, for training, um, we've brought people down to the canyon on their first day. And uh, in 2019, I brought them straight to Hellhole because I was like, oh, we got new techs. They want to see birds. Let's go somewhere where we're going to for sure see birds. And it's just overwhelming. Um, there's uh, one, there's two adjacent one kilometer segments that were in our subsample study area in 2019. Um, and we found that there were um, 11 pairs of birds occupying two kilometers of the canyon. And that's, that's two kilometers of the north wall, not the birds that are on the other side of the river behind you. So it's every 185 meters or so, there's another territory carved out. Um, now they, they patrol this tiny little territory of cliff and then they, when they go up to hunt, um, they're just free range out there. There's no sort of, um, foraging territory that they're defending. It's just this tiny little chunk of the canyon where they want to nest. And so to see pairs of birds patrolling back and forth, and that, that's how they designate their territory to other birds is they, they fly back and forth and they basically scream their heads off saying like, this chunk is mine. I dare you to come and try to put your eggs in here. Uh, and so to see pairs bouncing back and forth at only 150 or 200 meters um, and having these interactions um, I told my techs this year that you might see more prairie falcons in our first two hours of training than you've seen in your life cumulatively, um, especially if you're not from this part of the country. Uh, and so uh, it's there's some areas that are very dense like that and it's overwhelming and I, I try to assign more experienced techs to survey those areas. Um, and there's some areas of the canyon that, um, you know, you might do two kilometers in a day and you might see one pair of birds. But when you're in Hellhole or Falcon Flats or some area like that. Um, I've thrown my clipboard down and walked away from my scope a couple of times and just said, I'm going to reset. I'm going to come back to the scope in two minutes and start over because I'm, I can't even track what's happening. Um, it's very difficult to accurately survey those areas when the interactions are so crazy like that. Well, another thing that we've observed is, you know, Steve's talking about this horizontal spacing. We also have prairie falcons in, in that deep part of the canyon or quote unquote the hell hole where we have seen pairs separated vertically where their patrol area is one on top of another. This is, it's crazy. 
Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a uh, really unique population of prairie falcons, um, uh, which is a, a large part of, of why this survey work is so important. Right. Um, and so, you know, at, at this point, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, preliminary results, like what, what we've learned um, from these past, you know, uh, two years of survey da uh, data. So, like just to summarize, it's like th there, there, there was this 16 year gap in uh, survey work for prairie falcons in the canyon, as we discussed previously. Um, and then for the past two years, so in 2019 and in 2020, there were subsamples. So portions of the canyon were surveyed for prairie falcons uh, with the idea that that data could be extrapolated to come up with an estimate of the, the population as a whole. Um, this is the first year that a full canyon survey has been done since 2002. But even though we don't yet know the results from this full canyon survey that is just starting now, um, what have we learned from these past two years of uh, prairie falcon surveys? There, there's, there's more birds, I think, than we expected. Again, Todd Katzner, research wildlife biologist with USGS. But, uh, and I, I think that Karen and Mike and Steve can really talk about that. But to me, I, I think it also speaks to the, the resilience potentially of this population. Um, I think it speaks to the, the lack of knowledge that we have about how they, what makes them tick. And I, I think it also really speaks to the value of, of what, we're, what we're seeing. I mean, this, we are gaining so much information by, by having this long-term perspective that I, I think this is a really, it's a remarkable setting. And I, I think it, it really speaks to the, 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 the value of the work that was done before and, and the Guard and the BLM support for it and the, the Guard's ongoing support. And I, I think the, the remarkable efforts that Steve has made to herd the cats and keep this effort afloat and, and the, the real value of the collaboration. I mean, none of this happens without Boise State kind of as a linchpin. And uh, it, it, it's a really nice sort of joint thing that, that is pulled together by all these teams. And I didn't say anything about the birds or the results, so I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, Steve, do you think there's any value in in like citing the specific estimates of, of the, the full canon or anything like that, like the numbers of pairs? Sure. So there was three years in the late 70s uh, that were counted in the full canyon surveys. Uh, and those estimates were um, 206, 205, and 183. So uh, kind of hovering at that kind of 200-ish pairs of birds. Um, in the early 90s, those numbers range from Oh, 159 was the lowest year, and then 193 was the highest year, um, with kind of mid-180s kind of being the average there. So, again, very similar numbers, um, maybe a little bit lower in, those, in the early 90s. Um, and Karen mentioned that 2002, the Full Canyon Survey was, was a higher number, and so they, they estimated or they counted 217 pairs, which is the first one that got over that kind of 210 um, so higher than the highest years in the early 70s. And then 2003 was that first subsample effort. And based on the 
um, 10 five kilometer units that they sampled, they estimated that there would be 204 pairs, um, you know, with some confidence bars around that. Um, so that, that fell in line with, with what they had seen in the past. Uh, and so then we have the 16 year, you know, data gap. And in 2019, we subsampled the same five 10 kilometer segments um, that were subsampled in 2003. So it, it's a very similar comparison. Uh, and based on those numbers, our estimate produced a number that said 325 pairs, which is, you know, 100 pairs plus more than that they had counted. And so I think all of our eyebrows raised and, and more than a, a little bit for sure. Uh, and so, you know, Karen and I, and with Mike's help, we dug through, like she said, territory by territory. And we looked, you know, we had a zoom and I pulled up our GIS plus the field notebooks, plus the field maps. And we went through each territory. Um, and I think we're doing a decent job of counting and not double counting, I guess is really the thing, uh, not overestimating. Um, in 2020, we did a very similar analysis and the number was 309, which is still, you know, hundred pairs more than was counted in a full uh, Canyon survey previously. So we're really hopeful that we get, uh, if the weather holds for us and the gods of boat operation and flat tires and all of those things allow us to stay on schedule, um, that we get a full Canyon count and that, you know, I, I I guess I'm not wishing the number is a certain number, but it will be really nice to get a full Canyon count and have some evidence of what it looks like compared to the, the late seventies and the early nineties and the 2002 numbers. One of the things that we've found over time, and then I'll get to talking about the population estimates is that we, with this long-term uh, study effort, we have seen that there, that the prairie falcon can be affected by climate change and drought. We've seen where productivity and the number of occupied territories declined in the drought years. But, uh, but given that, I, we were pleasantly surprised with the, with the numbers in the recent uh, surveys because there was concerned at one point in time that the falcons might be declining. This is particularly in the late 1990s. And uh, so over the period, you know, the surveys in the early 2000s, the, mo the recent uh, last two years, uh, we've been really pleasantly surprised and happy to see those, the, the, those results. Yeah, I would echo that. And um, we did work closely with Steve and going over one territory at a time, trying to figure out if there was a possibility that any double counting had happened. And we might have found one or two cases of that, but but mostly not. Mostly, we became convinced that, that the data were pretty strong. We're seeing this significant increase in, in the number of prairie falcon pairs that are counted in the canyon. And yet, at the same time, we also know that there's been a really significant decline in, in native habitat, native shrub habitat. Do any of you have like any, any theories or hypotheses about like what's going on there? Like how is it possible that the habitat is severely degraded across the majority of the entire NCA and prairie falcon populations could increase? What we found when, uh, and this was the work that B. Van Horn did <clears throat> during the guard project was that the disturbed habitat actually had the highest 
densities of ground squirrels. They had some astronomical densities. However, these were unstable habitats. So like this year, where we're experiencing a pretty significant spring drought. It's making me wonder what's going to happen to the squirrels and subsequently what will happen to the prairie falcons. Those two low years that you mentioned in the 1970s and the 1990s were both drought years. And you could see how much the number of prairie falcons dropped each time. So that's one of the things. These disturbed, the disturbed habitats out in the NCA can produce a lot of squirrels when there's a lot of moisture, but they can they crash in the drought years. Um, one of the possibilities is that there's an influx of birds into this environment because of the very suitable nesting habitat that exists. That's Boise State University professor Jim Beltoff. And it's possible that many of them attempt to nest, but actually are not successful in nesting. And our surveys are going to count those individuals. And then we go out and monitor how many of, you know, a sample of those nests, how many are successful. So in, in 2019, it turned out that there was an increase in the number of birds, but a slight reduction in the proportion of nests that were actually successful. So there's a variety of biological phenomena that can occur. So this is a very suitable nesting environment and maybe in some ways could function as a sink habitat where birds are attracted to nest in this environment but then they can't pull off the full extent of reproduction because of these crashes in ground squirrels, these significant changes in habitat and so forth. So the effort is documenting a little bit of that as we go along as well, but getting some really refined information on that would be a nice add-on to the, the kind of research that's happening right now. There is an increase in the numbers that are being counted, but at least initially there was a decrease in, in the success of those birds. So I don't wanna mislead people to think that, you know, there's going to be these sustained increases in, in the numbers just because of the increase in numbers of, of breeding birds out there. That's not what we've seen so far. Good point. And, and to dovetail with that, um, I'm looking forward to a symposium that I'm going to be chairing um, that's going to bring together uh, folks who have been looking at prairie falcon populations in all of the states and provinces in which they nest. Um, that was going to happen at last year's Raptor Research Foundation meeting, but it, that was canceled due to COVID. Um, but we're reorganizing and planning to have it this coming year. So it will be interesting to see whether what the patterns are in, in throughout the nesting range. This data that's, that's come in like the last two years, you know, showing like at least pretty high like numbers of pairs like utilizing the canyon. Does that affects land management decision-making? Yeah, it's very complicated, you know. That's Joe Weldon, biologist with the Bureau of Land Management. Because, you know, the NCA is, you know, was designated to, to manage for, for raptors or populations um, to conserve their prey habitat, um, but while also, you know, providing for, you know, multiple uses, you know, which Steve touched on, of, you know, all these these typical, you know, multiple uses that occur across BLM lands in the West, which are, you know, livestock grazing, recreation, um, minerals and energy infrastructure support. The information from these surveys do provide us with some sort of baseline information onto whether or not, you know, the ongoing management actions that the BLM 
is authorizing, we're not having some detrimental impact by, you know, authorizing these different uses and providing for these different uses. I think another way that we would use, you know, this, uh, the data and, you know, the results in a BLM planning project, you know, if we're going to plan a restoration project, you know, because one of our goals, you know, and one of our emphasis of management is to, you know, restore habitat for, for raptor species and their prey habitat. So, you know, Paiute ground squirrel habitat. Um, if, you know, the survey information shows a scenario where, okay, it's not a hot spot, but, you know, th there's, you know, moderate densities here or something like that. It's like, and maybe we look at the, the habitat up on the uplands adjacent to those territories. And we say, you know, yeah, this area burned, you know, 10 years ago, it hasn't come back to its full potential. We know there's still some prairie falcons, you know, nesting nearby. Why don't we, you know, plan a project to grow out some shrubs, maybe do some weed treatments and then try to restore habitat, um, you know, in a small patch near those birds to maybe connect with a connected patch of, you know, established habitat. And um, I think that's another like positive way we would use the research um, results to, um, to maybe guide where to do restoration on the ground to improve conditions for those nesting birds that are using areas. You know, I'm the BLM biologist, I need to, we're doing all these different projects. It's, it should be our duty to have up-to-date population information on the species that we're managing for. Well, and that, you know, to me, that really highlights the importance of long-term monitoring, right? Um, and, you know, I, 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 I guess that brings me to like a, another question I could throw out at the group, which is, you know, we've talked about a lot about how important this this long-term monitoring for, for prairie falcons is and about, you know, how one particular year can show really high numbers or really low numbers, depending on the conditions on the ground. And obviously there's still a lot of unknowns associated with uh, those numbers. Um, but I mean, are there plans at this point for uh, like these surveys to continue? Is there funding available? Is there uh, a structure in place? for, you know, a, a frequency of subs, you know, subsamples uh, of the Canyon survey versus full Canyon surveys. There was um, a workshop in 2008. That's Steve Alsip, research associate at Boise State University. Well, uh, when all the powers that be in terms of land managers and researchers um, came together and they said, what, what should we be monitoring and how frequently should we be monitoring it? And so that, you know, after that, workshop um, for prairie falcons, it said that, you know, the suggestion was to monitor falcons in three out of every five years, uh, with two of those being a subsample and one of those being a full canyon survey. So after 16 years of, of no data collection, we will have hit that mark at the end of this year. So uh, I hope, you know, finding funding for a full canyon survey every year, I think is a long shot. Um, but if we could alternate uh, you know, take a year off, do a subsample, take a year off, do a subsample, take a year, do a full canyon. Um, then we get three really good years of data, two of which are significantly less expensive uh, than the full canyon survey. Uh, and if we can get every other year um, going for quite a while, then we, we have consistent data. Uh, and if we have a terrible weather year or, um, I mean, I think with, with the COVID year last year, the increased rec pressure in the NCA was staggering. So little things that don't aren't on the radar all of a sudden are on the radar. And so those little blips get picked up 
if we're doing regular monitoring, even if it's not every single year. So that suggestion to me sounds great. Two years of subsample, one, one year full Canyon uh, every five years. Um, the hard part is pulling the funding. Um, but I think we alluded to this earlier. It's, it's really this partnership that makes this whole thing work. Um, having Mike and Karen's, you know, understanding of the, of the history and how they set up the surveys, um, having Boise State as a research that has the capability to actually hire people on. We have trucks, we have the resources required to do the surveys. Um, having a partner like the Guard um, that is able to help support, um, the BLM is helping support these surveys. So it, it, I don't think, I think the years of one agency taking on a huge project like this and running with it are kind of over. And it's gonna take these type of collaborations to keep these things going. So. Uh, hopefully one of us on this has some idea of what the future looks like, um, but that might be slightly above my current pay grade. I'm going to pitch this to you, Kevin. Um, you read that really amazing quote from the general, certainly within this specific National Guard unit and, and you know, this specific training facility, like there's a strong interest in conservation and, uh, you know, doing this important survey work. Um, I mean, is, 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 is there a long-term plan associated with like continuing to collaborate and fund uh these surveys are like are i mean i i assume you're aware but i mean is that general aware of like this survey protocol so um yeah it's a, that's a tough one um our general and and all of the staff here totally support this and are on board with it but really what it comes down to is our budget is an annual thing and it's it's established annually, um, and and you know we can we can make requests and that we think are a good fit for the military and for the national conservation area, and um, but really for us it's a year to year thing. I mean you know we've had the past couple of years we all know how the the annual budget for the federal government goes, um, and that's where our money comes from. So um, it's really there is support here. But then again, it's a yearly thing. So it's really hard to get out ahead of that and, and, and say, yes, we're going to support because we just don't know from year to year. Gotcha. Yeah. We sort of entered the realm of politics here, which I know is not anyone's expertise on this call. <laughs> yeah. So we just, we get a budget every year and then we do the best we can with that. And, and if that includes uh, supporting surveys like this, then we're always, we're, you know, we're always looking to do that. Um, but, but it doesn't always happen. We're definitely thinking right now about how we want to continue this. Again, BLM biologist Joe Weldon. To do as best we can to stay on sort of that protocol that was recommended back in 2008. But yeah, we are definitely focusing and um, trying to prioritize how we're going to keep this project going into the future. Well, I, I do want to wrap up, wrap this up here. Thanks to all of you for, for taking the time to, to chat about this really uh, important and exciting research. Um, I, I hope that we could do this again next year once we uh, have a better understanding of, of the results or once we have you know, the, the data from this full Canyon survey and, and are starting to uh, kind of assess the meaning and, and understand what that means uh, for, for this really unique prairie falcon population. Thank you, Matt. Good seeing everybody. Take care. Get your vaccines.
One additional note that I have to share before we conclude this episode comes from Charlie Bond, the conservation branch manager for the Idaho National Guard. Charlie wanted to clarify that despite our focus on prairie falcons in this episode, the canyon surveys that the Guard's conservation program initiated and funded are focused on all raptors, not prairie falcons alone. The Guard has also funded Boise State University to the tune of $2.1 million for a new vegetation mapping process and conservation projects related to numerous wildlife species since 2013. Total conservation spending by the Idaho Army National Guard since 2010 is just over $27 million and constitutes the majority of the projects and data collected in the NCA to date related to natural and cultural resources, public use surveys, and economic impacts. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA partnership in association with the Wildlands Collective. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. The music heard in this episode comes from The Great Turtle.